So a few uh, years ago, my, uh, I, I bought one of my children a, a patch for his backpack, and I thought it was a um, I thought it was an apt description of what I thought my, my child was like. It turns out, actually, it's probably a better description of me. Um, the patch was a little circle, and it said museum nerd on it. And um, I, I, as I was thinking about this week's sermon over the last few weeks, I really realized I like museums. Uh, this came to the forefront just a couple days ago when I was hanging out with some guys playing disc golf and I was trying to convince them to be done with disc golf and go look at the museum at the fort, and uh, even though I'd been there quite a few times. Museums are fun places. I've taken students there as a teacher. I've taken families to museums on field trips. We did a field trip to New York City. I've talked about that before in the junior high boys I was in charge of. I've taken my family to many museums, and actually they like it. So it's not like I'm dragging them. Several times they've convinced me that this museum that didn't seem really interesting actually was a lot of fun. I think my favorite is probably the Smithsonian American History Museum, uh, followed closely by the Air and Space Museum. There are 55,000 museums in the world today. 55,000. And the top 100 have brought in over 140 million people last year. So there's a lot of people going to museums. You know, one of the, the museum out there at Fort Stevens, I did some undergrad research at, um, writing my, my senior paper. And I didn't, I didn't quite feel like Indiana Jones, but I definitely felt pretty special digging through old documents and microfiche. Some of you know what that is, some of you don't. Um, microfiche and looking at old newspaper clippings and getting to examine and just thinking through, you know, did they actually wear that during the summer when it's 90 degrees outside? Did they actually not wear correct gear during the winter, just thinking through all of that and just stopping and going, oh, that's what life was like. Now, of those 55,000 museums, there's some kind of absurd museums out there. There's a museum for bad art. So that might be something that some of you were like, hey, there's a place for me now, right? There's a museum of funeral history. Yeah, so there's a place where you can go and learn about how funerals were done in the past. There are some food museums, right? Museum of Spam, it exists. It's not in Hawaii, which I was surprised. There's a mustard museum. Who knows that you could have a museum about mustard? Idaho has a potato museum, shocker, right? There are some other ones, like the, the Museum of Weird, which is not located in Portland like I thought it would be. And then one of the ones that I think all the kids should go to, the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., but I love the word museum. You know, it's one of those words that no matter how many times you write it, you misspell it, right? It's one of those words that the letters are all out of order until you figure out that the first four letters is the word muse, M-U-S-E. This means to stop and think about something. To stop and we call it cogitate. That sounds really important, right? That means to think deeply on, to ruminate, to chew on it right? To just sit there and think. So this is why people, when they go to a museum, they're going to sit and look at things. This is how they can sit and look at a Rembrandt for hours or, or, or walk through the Monets and go, ah, oh, haystacks, wow, that's beautiful. 
or walking through the Natural History Museum and thinking about how God made the universe, looking at the Hope Diamond, which is not as big as I thought it would be, but it's still pretty impressive. Marvel at the size of God's creation. Look at massive dinosaur bones. Look at pictures and go, wow, that's what that looks like. Maybe it's of outer space. Maybe it's of people from the past. You see them, you stop, and you go, whoa, look at that. What was life like then? What, what is that? Isn't that amazing? Stopping and musing. This is what museums are for. Now, in our culture, even with the 140 million people going to the top 100 museums in the world, museums are not our most favorite form of entertainment. As a matter of fact, we are into a different type of entertainment that I'm going to call amusement. All right, you guys ever look at that, figured out that word out? Amusement is how we would say it. When you put the letter A in front of a word, it makes it the negative. So amusement or amusement is the lack of thinking. It's just doing without thinking. And isn't it true that our culture is all about the amusement? I mean, isn't that what our phones are dedicated to in a large degree? Apps that just amuse us and we don't have to actually think about anything? I did a little research, and it turns out that the top 25, only 25 amusement parks in the world had more than 50 million people, more than all of the museums combined. Just the top 25 amusement parks had way more people than the top 100 museums. So I think we've got a problem with slowing down and thinking. As a matter of fact, our enemy does not want us to do that. Our flesh, the devil, doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to be amused. He doesn't want us to stop and think on death and think on life and think on creation and think on our place in the universe. Instead, he'd rather have us go, oh, look at that. I just watched a little, I just watched a little TikTok video. Oh, it's another roller coaster. Not stopping and going, wait a second, look how small I am and look how great God is. How many of us, and I know I am guilty of this even yesterday, driving through a mammoth forest and going, are we there yet? Come on. How much longer? And we're driving by mountains and forests and rivers and creeks. Now, granted, it's probably not a good idea to have the driver looking and musing at the trees. I don't think that's probably what we want to see. But the fact we're like, let's just get through the forest and get to the ocean so we can get the tent set up and we can just get done with get done with get instead of going hold on a second let's stop and think let's stop and muse see we need to change our thinking about the world this world is a museum now it doesn't mean it's going to be dusty and boring it means it's meant to prompt us musing thinking about bigger things god's creation is for us to go Oh, that's what God's like. Oh, this is what God's like. Oh, God does that? If God is that big and can make that thing, then I can trust him with my little thing. So the whole point of our psalm today is to get to verses 31 through 35. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May my meditations, may my musing on you, Lord, be pleasing. If we just go... Let's skip to verse 31, Pastor John. We can have a five-minute sermon. Let's go. That's the amusement. That's the amusement model trying to get you to not stop and think. 
This psalm is meant for us to go slow down and go, okay, let's look at this. When we see a sunrise, we're to go, wow, God's wisdom, his creativity made that. We see a sunset, we go, yes, he's creative and he's wise, but look, he's an artist. When we see the hummingbirds that fly all over the place and they fly backwards, which is like nearly physically impossible, and we go, wow, God's a designer. God's an engineer. Do we stop and we think about that? See, the background for this psalm is that the, the Canaanites, the people that were in the promised land before the Israelites were given it by God, they had lots and lots of gods. The Israelites were looked down on because they had one. And the Canaanites, they had a God behind everything. They had a God behind the sun. They had a God behind the moon, a God behind the river, a God behind fill in the blank. Today in our culture, we have the exact opposite. We have no gods. Our culture pushes so hard against the idea of a god or gods. Matter of fact, you go to many of these museums, you got to just not read the little placards, right? Or you got to adjust them in your mind a little bit because there's a lot of nonsense there. See, we have a world that is run by nature. And nature, she is indifferent. She is cruel. She is not evil, not good. She just doesn't care. One atheist wrote this, the universe we observe has all the properties we should expect. No design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. The world doesn't care you're here, and it doesn't, won't miss you when you're gone. Go have a good day. That's the mindset of our world. This psalm doesn't let us go there. This psalm and the next three psalms, as we finish out our psalms this year, are the, the, the fourth book of psalms. The book of psalms is broken up into five sections. And this is the fourth section, and we're going to finish it with Psalm 106 in two weeks, Lord willing. All of these psalms are, here are reasons to praise God. We've been doing this over and over again. Today, praise God for his creation, his design, his caretaking. He wants us to end with wonder and amazement and astonishment, and mesmerization, which is a word, I looked it up, worship, and ultimately love. We can't sit back and just be like, ho-hum, yeah, yeah, you know, God made all this and it works together perfectly, whatever. He wants us to go, wow, that's my God. That is the God who made me and loves me. We are meant to be stunned and awed by creation. We're meant to go, because Psalm 8 says, just his fingers did this. If God's fingers can do that, imagine if the whole person was behind it. God's fingers created. God's full power is there. Yes, we can only see it dimly. Our world is sinful. Our world's fallen. There's death and there's dying and there's destruction and there's entropy and things are not working the way they're supposed to. But in that, we still can see how great God's creation is. So I want to put you guys on that. And today I'm going to tell you a lot about God's creation. But telling is not as good as showing. So we're going to do some visual show and tell today. All right, not taking a field trip to a museum, even though I thought about it. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to, as we are walking through this psalm, we're going to go through every single verse. We're going to go through them fast, right? But as we're going through them, I'm going to put up some pictures on the screen. And these pictures are going to interact with what you see from the text. Because unfortunately, 
our imagination sometimes, we can't quite imagine some of these things. And so I want to kind of give us a little bit of a prompt, a little bit of a push. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is we see that God is the creator of everything. Look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. So the Lord is in control of the fire. He is the one that spreads it out. Whether it be a nebulae made of fire thousands and millions of miles away, the Lord made it. Charles Spurgeon says, this is the nature lover's psalm. It's a psalm of nature viewed by the eye of faith. And see, that's our problem. We need to look at the things around us through faith, not through our world's messed up view of it. He goes on, he says, He that learns to look rightly on seas and mountains and on beasts and birds, on sun and moon and stars, sees God in all things. That's the change we must get to. See, there's no chance in this world. Everything happens because God is in control of it. God is sovereign. God controls the movements of the stars, and he controls the movements of the atoms, all of them. Next, we see that verses 5 through 30, God performs six miracles. The first miracle is in verses 5 through 9. He creates the earth and the deeps. Here's what it says. He set the earth on his foundations so that it would never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. That's the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank to the place that you appointed them. You set a boundary that they will not pass so that they might not cover the earth again. So we see waves. We see water as destruction here, probably alluding to the flood. But either way, we see that God was in control. It says that he set a boundary. And this is an interesting phrase here. The idea is he set a wall around something. In our world today, 21st century, the word science is thrown about a lot. This is the science. The science says this. The science, 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 right? It's everywhere. Unfortunately, many times it's actually used wrongly. The idea of science is that if X creates Y under certain circumstances, you can do the same thing over and over again if you have the same circumstances. Same environment, same this, X will always equal Y. Boom, 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 right? That's how it should be. It works. Why does it work? Because God set the boundaries. He said, this will always be this. Two plus two will always equal four, not five, not airplane, not whatever, right? Two plus two equals four. A personal creator who set out all the principles of physics, mathematics, biology, chemistry, and all of the above. The reason airplanes work is because aerodynamics exists. God made aerodynamics. He made the concept of electricity and medicine and so on. All of this comes from God and his regulating of the universe. It's not chaotic. Chaos is not a thing. It is regulated. And praise be to God that he does that. The second thing he created, second miracle, it says the Lord provides for water for all creatures. Verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. 
They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, your water, and you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. So in the first bit, water was destructive. Now, water is life-giving. Water is life-giving. There is life in this water. The world is actually full of God's wisdom. He created it and put it all together. For example, there's a thing called a diatom. A diatom. And there are 10,000 known species of diatoms. They are these little teeny microscopic like plants. And you know what they do? They make oxygen to oxygenate standing water. And that's what they look like. 10,000 different versions of them. And until 1790, nobody even knew these existed. So for 10,000 years, God is reveling and enjoying his creativity of these 10,000 diatoms that are all different and all are beautiful. Our Lord made those, and only he saw them up until a few hundred years ago. The third thing, the Lord provides food and shelter for all his creatures, verses 14 through 18. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The Lord provides all the food. Later on in the Gospels, it says that he provides the food for the birds. He provides everything that the plants will need. God provides all of it. What's more, and this is what they're getting at in the second part of this, verse 15, God made it taste good, right? I mean, if anybody in here has been in the military, you know there are lots of ways to make really healthy food that does not taste good. Okay, I got an amen from Debbie Thunberg back there. So making something taste good, that's God blessing us even more. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I love is the the idea of salt. I actually, I I know, no surprise, but I read a history book on on salt. It's got a catchy name. It's called Salt. That was the name of the book. Anyway, so salt actually is one of the most prevalent minerals on earth, but yet humans fight for it. There have been countless wars over salt. As a matter of fact, many of the early battles they decided on, well, if we take this area, there's a salt deposit here and we can go there and not take maybe something that would have been more advantageous. There are 70 quadrillion tons of salt on earth right now. That's 100 quintillion pounds of salt. Once you get past trillion, it's like you can't figure it out. Here's what that is. It's a 100 with 20 zeros after it. That's how many pounds of salt there are on earth. And what's salt for, right? We've talked about this. Salt's for preserving. But God, showing off, just went, not only is it going to preserve, I'm also going to make it make things taste better. So when you sprinkle that on your steak and it goes, oh, there's something, some new flavor that popped out, that's the salt doing that. He made things taste good to give us pleasure, to give us joy. Just like he feeds the animals, he gives us pleasure for the flavors of our food. Continuing, verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, overflowing the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In in them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. 
All the animals that live in the mountains like this one right here, the Tenric, cute little animal. They all have homes, they all have places, and the Lord provides for each and every one of them. And what's interesting here is the psalmist picks a bunch of random animals to bring up. Back in verse 11, he said, wild donkeys. Here, he says, storks, birds, wild goats, rock badgers. Why are these random animals thrown in there? Why didn't he say, like, puppies and panda bears and other, you know, or, you know, for the junior high boys in the room, sharks and, you know, lions and whatever, right? The reason why is because he's actually showing us something. When he says wild goats and wild donkeys, he is saying the animals that cannot be tamed. Wild goats and wild donkeys are famous for the fact that no matter how you try, you can't domesticate them. And there is no way to do that. And actually, the, the, the name of the wild donkeys is the actual name of a kind of donkey there. And same thing for wild goats. But our translators want us to understand that it's not just that brand of goat, but it's the wild ones and the wild donkeys. So he's saying, these animals are not useful for man, but yet God feeds them. So what's the deal with the stork and the rock badger? Well, in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, the stork and the rock badger are listed as unclean animals. Okay, so what's he saying here? He's saying, not only do I provide for people, for animals that are not useful for humans, but I also provide for all the unclean. I think there's a bigger picture here. He's saying, I provide for everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're useful or you're clean or you're unclean. I provide for all. He provides for every single animal. And if he'll provide for these animals, he will provide for us. The fourth thing he made, the sun, the moon, darkness, and light. Look at verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its times for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. So the Lord makes the stars in the sky, getting out of the city and being able to see just the vast array of stars. He made all of those, and he appointed their path through the sky. Not only that, but he made the nocturnal animals, like this glass frog that you'll see here. Go ahead and go to the next one for me. It's literally see-through. You can see his eternal, or internal organs through there. The nocturnal animals are protected by the fact that God made the darkness and he provides for them. Again, he made the darkness, he made the light. The fifth thing, fifth miracle, verses 24 through 26, the Lord made the sea and its inhabitants. He thought our animals were weird so far. The sea's got the, 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 the corner on weird animals. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. The first creature I want you to see is called Glacus Atlanticus. They need to find a better name for it because this thing is so beautiful. It's actually a form of a, a sea slug, but it has wings and it flies through the water. Verse 24 says, how manifold are your works. That word manifold means innumerable. Your works are so, there's so many of them, we can't even count them all. 
We must recognize that the Lord is a creator. The Lord is a designer. The next animal I want you to see is a a leafy sea dragon. They're about the size of your thumbnail, but they look like leaves so that animals wouldn't eat them. God's creativity, God's design, 5,000 known species of sponge, 300,000 beetle types, and he created them all. Now, while these are amazing and they're not things you see on a regular basis, I want to talk about something we see a lot more of, and I want you to understand how amazing it is, and that is the next slide, rain. I want to talk about rain for a second. Yes, I'm going to go there right in the middle of summer, sorry. But do you understand how brilliant our water cycle is? Do you understand how amazing every single one of those raindrops that makes your day gloomy? Do you understand how much of a miracle each of those are? If you were to go to one of our lakes or rivers and pump the water out of that, it is not as pure as a raindrop falling. It's not as pure as any rain that's going to hit you this winter. So let's talk about that for a sec. Our earth is the right distance from the sun in this perfect little spot called the Goldilocks zone where our, our oceans don't boil. It's just hot enough that our oceans evaporate, but it's not too hot that it boils. It's not too cold that they evaporate and become clouds. If it was too cold in the, in the atmosphere, it would t- go and turn into snow and it would just fall back down and there'd be no water on the dry land. It would all be over the oceans. But instead... It evaporates. It makes these tiny, microscopic water molecules evaporate up into the sky where they start to bump into each other enough to make clouds. And then because of the way the Lord has designed the earth with high temperatures and low temperatures and high pressure and low pressure, we get wind. And that wind pushes the clouds. And the clouds begin going towards the sea, or towards the shore. When they bump into mountains, all of those trillion, quadrillion water molecules that have bumped into each other start bumping into each other more until there's a million water molecules in one little drop, and then that drop decides to fall down and hit you on the back of the neck and go right down the back of your shirt. That water drop, as annoying and maybe depressing as it is, is a miracle. God purifies the water by having it evaporated so that when it falls on the land, it makes the plants grow. It makes our rivers flow. It falls as snow on mountains, which makes glaciers, which feeds our rivers when there is no rain. What a picture. I want to go back to verse 26 for a sec. The psalmist says, There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. He's talking about sea creatures, big sea creatures and small. He says, I made them so that they will play in the water. There are animals that frolic in the water. I mean, when, if you're like me, you go right to Shark Week, and it's like everything's a predator in the, in the, in the ocean. But there are animals out there that we have no explanation for, but they, they play. Dolphins, sea otters, seals, they play. And there's no reason for them to do that other than God goes, I like that. I like them frolicking. I like them. And they've been doing it for thousands of years, thousands of miles from the human eye. Not only that, but I think God has creativity mixed with a sense of humor. So he made this Dumbo octopus, which is that, which I'm sure somebody will want as a pet. But 
He made these. And, and, and there's thousands of animals that we haven't even discovered yet. I mean, think about this for a sec. God has made at least a trillion suns in the universe, probably a lot more. There might be that many planets or more. Every single one of those suns is rising and setting, and he sees all of the colors every day, every time, and has for all of, et- all of the creative time. There are flowers that are growing right now that only he sees and smells and sees their beauty. This is the God that made all of this, and he designed it all. Why did he design it? For you? No, he designed it for his glory, for his name to be made great. He sees every crawler, every walker, every bubble-blowing animal, making houses, flying, slithering, whatever they do. He sees them all, and he goes, those are mine, I made them, look how great I am. See, animals do exactly what they're created to do. They glorify God. Elizabeth Elliot once said, a clam glorifies God better than we do because the clam is being everything it was created to be, whereas we are not. Humans are the only beings that can look at the created universe and go, eh, I think it happened by chance. Instead of going, wow, is this not the God of the universe's handiwork? The sixth miracle, verses 27 through 30, these also look to you, give them food in due season, When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. So we see the Lord controls life and he controls death. He brings the winters. He brings the snow. It says he hides his face. That means to removal of blessing. And here the psalmist is talking about dying. He's saying that there are seasons The plants die. And actually, it turns out it's a good thing because the plants dying bring up the next round of plants. We are so arrogant to think that we don't need God, but realizing if he hadn't created the world the way he did, there would be no oxygen, there would be no water, there would be no food. Verse 30, when you send forth forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. God is into recreation. God is into bringing life out of death. Spring does come. The flowers push through the snow. And this is a regular pattern, but it's even closer than we think. Because not only is God the God of all creation, but he's the God of recreation as well. Without even knowing it, so far the psalmist has been speaking about one person. He's been speaking about Christ. In Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is talking about Jesus. Hebrews 1, 2 says, In these last days we spoke of the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Verse 3, He is a radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, the thing is, is that in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we call that the Trinity. Within that, God the Father delegates the responsibility of creation to Jesus, the one who's going to walk on this earth as a man is in charge of making this place. Not only that, look at this, and when I saw this in Colossians, it blew my mind. 
verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And this is the verse that killed me. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things are held together by Jesus. I had a friend of mine who uh, was, was a good friend of, so a friend of a friend, of a molecular biologist. And he worked on microbiology, going down to the atomic level and looking at atoms and, and figuring out how they work together. And the thing that he said was so amazing is he says, you look at these chairs and this podium and this building and our flesh, and you need to realize at the subatomic level, it's all space. There is nothing solid. You've got this atom, and when you compare an atom to another atom, it's miles and miles apart. And molecular biologists and microbiologists and all these guys, they can't figure out what's keeping them together. Why are they together? Guys, we have it right here. Jesus holds it all together. Before microbiology, before microscopes even existed, the Apostle Paul said, I know what's holding everything together. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. He controls all of creation. He put it together. He holds it together. He is holding you together right now, so I think he can handle whatever you're dealing with. There is nothing too big for our God. He's still in the business of creation, as a matter of fact. Romans 6, we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The same God that sends the winters and then the springs wants to do the same thing in each of our lives. He wants to be our God. He wants us to submit to him so that the old man will die and the new man will be born again. God is a God of recreation. He wants that. And if you're a believer today and you've made that decision, he wants to continue rebuilding and growing you. He wants to create in you new ways to glorify him by the work that he does in you. Revelation 21.5, behold, I'm making all things new. If you remember, Nicodemus was talking to Jesus back in John 3, and Nicodemus is confused about this. Jesus says, you must be born again to see the kingdom. And Nicodemus says in verse 4, how can a man go into his, into his mom a second time? And Jesus says, truly, truly, you must be born of water and the Spirit, and then you can enter the kingdom of God. The Spirit comes and re makes us reborn, a new birth. This is what God, the Creator, is doing today. Finally, we hit the main point. And don't worry, it's not a really long main point. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He's saying, I'm, I want the Lord to take delight in this. Now, this word may here is not a prayer. This is not saying, eh, this may happen. Instead, the psalmist is saying, I exult in this. I am ready for this to happen. It is going to happen. But have it happen now. This is not a, eh, it may happen. It is, it is happening. There is a certainty so why does the Lord rejoice in his works? Well, first, because his works praise him. Psalm 148 says, 
Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, shining stars. Praise him, highest heavens. And you waters above, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth and all you great sea creatures. So the animals are doing it. They're praising the Lord. So the first reason God rejoices is because they praise him. Secondly, they show his glory. We talked about that a second ago. Third, it shows off his wisdom. Like how did he figure out how that rain thing would work? But he did it in his wisdom. They show his power. The stars that are burning hotter than our stars, the thunder that rattles your fillings, his power is beyond compare. And finally, these works are to point us to him. When the flowers come up, we go, our God's a God of rebirth. When the fall comes and things are dying, we go, yes, they're dying, but praise be to God, there's going to be a rebirth. Verse 32, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing of the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. The mountains smoke at his presence. The earth trembles. The vast power of a volcano. Mount St. Helens blowing up like it did with 200,000 kilotons and all the other just insane amounts of pressure and power and strength. And our God goes, that's nothing. I got that. May the meditation, may my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Just like Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, my meditation, my musings, what I think deeply about. Lord, let it be pleasing to you. Let it be something that you are getting pleasure from. This word pleasing is a peaceful, refreshing sleep or a fulfilled desire. It's saying, Lord, I want to bless you. I want you to feel pleasure from my musing and thinking about you. So much of the time in our culture, we feel like we have control, right? We decide what we're going to eat, where we're going to eat, when we're going to eat, what we're going to watch. Our phones are all about being able to do everything from there, turning on your air conditioning, turning off the heat, turning on lights, locking doors. Our cars tell us we're in control. Our heating and air conditioning tells us we're in control. Creation disagrees. You're not in control. Creation shouts, you're not in control. This is not all about you. It's about one person and one person only. It's about God. I mean, we know this. We can't control the weather. We can't control where the grass actually grows and whether weeds come or not. We can't control squirrels or moles or raccoons or woodpeckers. We can't control thunderstorms. We can't survive the bitter cold. We can't survive the blazing heat but God can and does. And when we see this rightly, when we see that everything in creation is made to glorify God, now when we come to this table and we start talking about why God came and died on the cross, when Jesus came and died on the cross for us, we see it's not about us. We get all the benefits, we get all the the greatness of Jesus' death, but he came and he died for one reason and one reason alone, and that is to glorify the God of the universe like the rest of creation has been doing and will be doing long after we're gone. And when we see that rightly, everything falls into place. 
If we build up our lives based on what we can do, we're building it on sand, and all it takes is one little teeny wave, and it wipes it right away. But when we build it on the rock, when we build our lives, when we say, Lord, I am not God, you are, I submit to you, and I want to follow you, our house is now on the rock. And that rock will not be moved. Verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Creation has been marred by the fall. Creation has been marred by sin. And so creation is not as clear as we will see it eventually. And there is going to come a time when sinners will be consumed. There is going to come a time when the wicked will be no more. And we see this prayer answered in Revelation 21. But we also see it answered in Jesus' death on the cross in our place. So we are never to move past the fact that Christ is the reason we can enter into God's museum and see this rightly. So there's three final responses to this. The first one is songs of praise. Sing out. Not just here on Sundays, but sing it out. Have a song about you. Praise completes the enjoyment of something. So praise him in song. Second, what we've been talking about this whole time, muse. Think about. Don't ever get past thinking deeply about what God has done. You are going to see a million miracles today. And I'm not talking about people coming back from the dead. If the Lord does that, sweet. I'm talking about miracles that water can get hot, that water can get cold, that food tastes good, that when you turn on your car, combustion still works, electricity still works. All of that is a miracle because of a God who put the plan in place and then said, I hold this together. And lastly, we need to respond with gospel hope. We need to long for this new creation. We need to think deeply about the fact that, yes, this world's fallen, but there is a new world coming, and I'm a part of it if I submit to the Creator right here and right now. There is no better place to be than in the midst of God's perfect spot.